I've been thinking a lot about faith this week. Um, anyone here ever taught their teenager to drive? Did you manage to get through it without rowing? I, I'm, I want dad points. I have been driven down by Emily and we haven't had one crossword yet, but I've had four heart attacks <laughs> in restraining myself and ta- internalising my pain. Um, she's been driving me around actually beautifully. Uh, it's been really good, but there have been moments of judgment where I would judge situations differently. That's how I prefer to interpret it. Not as learner driving, but we're just looking at the road in a very different way. But what a weird thing it is to sit next to someone while they're driving you, and it's like, it's your kid, and, and I can't stop the car. Like, you can't... I mean, I could pull the handbrake through the floor. I mean, I just one time, I wanted, to, I wanted to pull that handbrake through the... I just, as much as I wanted to stop the car, there's nothing you can do. It's complete powerlessness but it's a really good lesson in faith I've found this week every week I try and learn something about following Jesus now I've 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 got more hope now in my future destiny should I die which is really good and learning to trust is a big thing actually and sometimes life can feel like it's spinning out of control sometimes you have a lot of things crowding in on you sometimes you know you do actually feel like you're in a passenger seat and there's nothing you can do to stop the things that are happening around you has anyone else ever felt like that there's nothing you can do about it. That's exactly what I felt like while Emily's been driving me around. But so far, I'm still alive, which is why I'm still here. This is not a pre-recording hologram uh, of me. But it has been an interesting lesson in, in, in trust. And um, conveniently, uh, we're doing our sort of... We knew we were going to thin out a bit over holidays. So we thought, well, we'll take a break from our Matthew series, for those of you that are visiting. We're really into systematically looking at the Word of God and taking it bit by bit, verse by verse, and just really trying to dig into it and get as much out of it as we can. But because we want everyone to journey through the book of Matthew and so on with us, we thought we'd take a break, and we're doing these biblical heroes. And um, basically the way it worked was, uh, here's I, I'd written a book called uh, 52 Men, so we thought well, there's some base material there that people can use, uh, available on Amazon and, and bad bookshops, but it is... <laughs> I'm a serial writer of thin paperbacks. So um, uh, we did that, but I'd, we just sort of said, let's pick a name. And I went, oh, I have Isaiah, without thinking about it, which is like one of the most epic, complex, prophetic characters in, in history. So what we're going to try and do today as part of our biblical character series is give you an overarching view of Isaiah, the big themes and a little bit about him and see where we go with it. I mean, we don't know huge amounts about him. We know a bit, uh, but we know a lot about the history. So I, I did some very painstaking research, uh, lot, lot hours and hours trawling through archives to find a photo of him. And um, this is Isaiah, for those of you that have never seen him before. Um, he, he, he ministered in a very interesting period of time. Um, just to say that I hand wrote my notes and I can't read them very well but I think we're going to be fine partly because I've got my contacts in and I left my reading glasses somewhere but it's going to be alright so 
He ministered in a time around 740 BC. There's some very interesting things that were happening around the time of Isaiah. For instance, the Greek alphabet had been formulated only about 60 years earlier. So this is the kind of historical period that we're talking about. Romulus and Remus, of course you know them. It's not the name of a nightclub. Romulus and Remus had, was founding Rome at around that time. Uh, anyone here watch the film 300? Um, 300, the Battle of Thermopylae. Anyone here, anyone here watch movies? Give me some feedback, people. Come on. You know, it's the stylized violent one. No one wanted to admit watching it because, you know, it's stylized violence. That's why you're not admitting, is you? And not quite, oh, no, 300. I, don't, I heard about that film, but it's not for me. So um, the Battle of Thermopylae happened uh, around that time, too, which was when uh, King Leonidas uh, held off the invading Persian hordes, about a quarter of a million Persian invaders at a place called the Hot Gates at Thermopylae. That was happening around the time of Isaiah. The Iron Age was starting. In, in Germany, they found remnants of the Iron Age around the time of Isaiah, so that was all happening. So this is real historical stuff. And topically, the first Olympic Games had just happened. That's a bit of a thing, isn't it? So uh, this is how far back we're going. This was when Isaiah was around. Um, he, he lived in a tumultuous time. Uh, let's show the map. So the kingdom of Israel had split into two halves approximately a couple of hundred years earlier. You've all heard of Solomon, of course. Many you would have heard of Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived. And uh, Solomon was, uh, although he had his flaws and his weirdness and his foibles, uh, he was a wise king and had built a very strong empire. But his, his son was a nightmare. His son, Rehoboam, uh, basically ignored the advice of his father's advisors and surrounded himself with young men, his mates, surrounded himself with yes men and his mates. And when a petition was made to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, to lower taxes, they were under this really uh, sort of penalizing tax system. I mean, I really don't know what that would look like or feel like, of course, but they were under this terrible taxation and, uh, and Rehoboam ignored the, the older men who said, look, you need to appease people. You need to like, love your people. Ignored it. And so the kingdom split. And basically 10 tribes uh, ignored um, uh, Rehoboam. They, sort of, they ignored the Davidic line stuff. And they formed Israel in the north. And Judah was formed of two tribes in the south. You're loving this? It's let you know what's all happening. Olympic Games in one place. Kingdom split in another place. Greek alphabet. Iron Age. It's all kicking off. So, and, and 300, the unmentionable film. So, uh, Judah is now in the south, and Isaiah ministered in Judah. So, that's where he was, uh, and he, he had this kind of epic, uh, prophetic ministry. He's actually called by many scholars the evangelist of the Old Testament, because it's almost like everything was through the filter of Jesus Christ. It's quite uncanny, actually, when we look at some of the stuff. We're going to delve into a couple of little bits and pieces. But it's almost as if he was writing from the future looking back. It's actually quite remarkable. And there are some, there's a really good book on Isaiah. If, if one or two of you, or a handful of you here, are really into studying this stuff, there's a book by a man called Motier who wrote a kind of like 
uh, sweeping narrative about Isaiah, but it reads like a Tom Clancy novel, just a little bit more academic. But it's like it's really good stuff. And it's, seriously, so if you're into reading, you'd really enjoy it. And it tells you about all the stuff around Isaiah. We also, a couple of things we know about Isaiah. Uh, he was married. And we know that from Isaiah chapter 8. He often talks about the prophetess. Um, so, for instance, when he gave birth. Have you ever heard of Mahershalal Hashbaz? No, it's not the name of a Turkish restaurant. In Mansfield, you never you know, seriously. Mahershalal has based the, the longest name in the Old Testament was Isaiah's son, and so we know he was married because it says things like, "I've got oh there they are over there. I've got to find the Excuse me, <laughs> got to get me reading glasses. Sorry, <laughs> because it's got to the stage where I've got me contacts in. Can't read. If I wear my glasses, I have to take them off to read. But I can't read my Bible. There we go. Excuse me. Uh, uh, here we go. Uh, Isaiah 8, verse 3. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said to me, name him Mahershalal Hashbaz. That, my friends, is a, is a Christmas quiz question right there that I'm going to give you a heads up on. You know my traditional Christmas quiz, which is easy, or the annual Redeemer King quiz outside of Christmas, there may well be a question, which is the longest name in the Old Testament? The answer is Mahershalal Hashbaz. But also, it's very interesting what it means. His name uh, means... Um, I wrote it down here. <laughs> I can't read my notes. Uh, Shalal Hashbaz. So they had two sons. Uh, Shir Yashuv was the other one. But Mahershalal Hashbaz meant spoil quickly, plunder speedily which is basically a prophecy. He gave like, prophetic names. He was prophesying about the Assyrians plundering uh, Damascus. And he had another son called Shir Yashub, which means the remnant shall return, which is basically a prophetic name about everything will come good in the end. So we know he was married, and he, and he called his wife the prophetess. We don't know. Scholars are divided as to whether she called, he called her the prophetess because she was prophetic or it was an honourable title because she was married to a prophet. But there you go, he was married and he had sons. Also, what we do know about this particular time was it was an extremely prosperous time in Judah. However, there was a problem. The rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. And I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that God hated it. He absolutely hated the economic system at the time. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to read this stuff to you, uh, which actually is um, intimidating when you read it. Um, but it, it is a bit of a thing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1. This is, this is talking of worship before God. So you need to imagine that outside the temple, people were dying from starvation, but the rich were getting richer and the temple was getting lavish and everything was really cool. I'm not doing an anti-wealth talk. I'm just telling you what God's heart was in Isaiah because these are some of the big themes. Um, let me read this to you. 
Isaiah 1 verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? I mean, it's really strong language. Stop bringing your worthless offerings no longer. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and a solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. I mean, it is really, really strong stuff. To put it in context, what was happening was was that you know the church are buying their new projection systems, all the good stuff. They're building buildings and putting all the best flooring down, and everything was looking slinky. And they had the, all the big flat screen TVs and all of that. And the poor were dying outside the church. And God said, "I hate it. I cannot stand this anymore." Not that God doesn't like worship, He doesn't like festivals and all of those things. But this was a heartbeat. But what it does do is give you a window on Isaiah, which is quite profound. When that's his opening, that's the opening of his letter. <laughs> that's, that's like his opening gambit. So he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. Something we'll come on to in just a bit. Uh, and the prophets were often like that. So here's the, the big themes for me. Uh, when you look at Isaiah, if you took justice out of Isaiah, you'd have a very, very thin Bible. Um, a uh, very, very thin book. Uh, for instance, you'll know the uh, main passages in Isaiah 58, I'm sure. You, many of you will know what Isaiah 58 is, the call to true fasting. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a, a, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? He's saying, look, when you fast... Don't, don't go and mope about for a day. I'll give up your KFC for a day. That's not fasting. He says, this is fasting. Is this not the fast which I choose? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to untie the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is he not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? I mean, I was reading that again this week and um, I thought, I used to do that. I, I used to bring people into my home people stay in my house who are really needy I used to always have like I have lots of people over anyway but they're like people from the church yeah I really I read that again I thought I find that really personally challenging actually um like you can say oh yeah oh we, we have a lot we're very hospitable we have people over all the time and we do but actually they're they're you call people or you know people I'm I'm witnessing to or making friendships with but I don't have the homeless poor in my house I, I don't I, I mean I used to I used to do all that it's funny isn't it how you can lose ground you just sort of you just lose ground somehow 
and you can come up with all kinds of excuses like oh, I'm really busy and I have a lot on I've got a very demanding job and I'm trying to do the church on the side and blah 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 but actually I'm I'm not doing what the Lord wants it's got to find that challenging when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh and then these beautiful promises which we'll come on to later from verse 8 so big big themes around justice Another big theme was that the Messiah was coming. I said to you, he was known as the evangelist. So here is, and we've had to spread this across several slides. I've put in bold uh, the prophecy and underneath the fulfillment. And I'm not expecting you to memorize all this now. I just want you to see, to grab the big picture scale of how amazing the prophetic nature of Isaiah was and is. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've got any doubt about the Bible or any doubt that Jesus was real or the prophecies were true, just, just check this out. The, I mean, I'm not going to go through them all, uh, but you'll see the verses in Isaiah and then the other verse underneath. Do you have the next one? Heir to the throne of David, will have his way prepared. He'll be spat on and struck. It's, it's just uncanny. And then uh, next one will be exalted, disfigured by suffering, will make a blood atonement. Next one. Widely rejected, bear our sins and sorrows, because he died for our sins, Romans 4 and 1 Peter. Will be our substitute, Isaiah 53, died in our place, Romans 5, 6. Next one. Voluntary accepts our guilt and punishment for sin. There might be some more, I think. I think I sent some more over, yep. Gentiles will seek him. We'll be silent before his accusers, will save us, uh, those who believe in him. Is there more? There should be loads more. I think it's about 66. Let's go again. It's amazing, isn't it? I think this is amazing. I mean, it's so spot on. Any, any more? I think I've got loads more. Oh, was it? I thought I had more than that. I had 66 in total. But there you go. I thought I didn't send them all to you, did I? Because I'm incompetent. I pulled out 66. I've got, I've got reams of them all stamped through the book of Isaiah, which is why they call him the prophet, uh, the evangelist prophet, because he was almost as if he was standing in another time, in another place, and looking back. Even though, do you get what I mean? It was like he was just living in a, in a different zone. The stuff that came out of him. And it's stuff that you know and love, like the Isaiah um, 7 passages and, and Isaiah 9. I mean, they're just like, you read it and you think... This is just unbelievable. Uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and you'll bear a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel in Isaiah 7. I mean, I mean, you've either got to say that, that the writers of the Gospels looked back at Isaiah and made up a story that fitted around the prophecies, which I would contend takes a lot of effort. I mean, it's enough effort putting on a panto. I mean, doing, uh, orchestrating that is just, it just doesn't happen, does it? It's just unbelievable. Uh, and then beautiful uh, verses around uh, the reign of, of peace in Isaiah 9. Uh, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in dark land, a light will shine on them. We read this at Christmas, don't we? You'll break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the Battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and Cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, 
and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end and increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would accomplish this. Now understand this. He's writing this in a divided kingdom too. You've got ten tribes out of all the tribes, ten of them rejected the line of David and stayed in Israel. And he's only with two tribes in Judah and increasingly isolated. And he is saying, actually, one day this will come good. I mean, that's, 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 this is big stuff, if your eyes are. It's really big stuff. So anyway, um, some takeaways. I don't want to talk for a long time this morning. Um, but there are some big picture takeaways that I I noted that you know for me this is this is what the the book said to me. Isaiah spoke in a time when the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer and people were rejecting God increasingly. And and he was told in Isaiah six that people wouldn't listen to him. I mean, he wrote that down in Isaiah six. You see it for yourself that people wouldn't listen. But that didn't stop him. The fact that what he was saying was unpopular didn't stop him. The fact that what he was saying might seem ridiculous about one day the Messiah would come, even though everything might start to fall apart, didn't stop him. The, the, the apparentness of his popularity didn't dictate his message. And I think there's a lot of pressure on the church at the moment. And there's a lot of pressure on people like me and people like you about what we believe. But it seemed to me that Isaiah, when you read through it, and I do encourage you to get a good commentary and read through it as, as part of just the thing that you do. What you'll notice is he actually said some deeply unpopular stuff and he noted that no one would listen to him, but it didn't stop him. Nor do I think we should compromise or stop talking about Jesus or calling people to radical, godly, holy living. I really don't, but I think there will be increasing pressure for us to do so and to stay quiet. And I find that pressure all the time, running a ministry that's working in schools, uh, working with young people, and sometimes gets national attention. Uh, it's, it's so hard sometimes to walk that fine line between proclaiming truth and freedom in Jesus Christ and not. For instance, um, even if it comes down to stuff like how we get funding, like some of the work that we're doing at the moment with ex-offenders, the government's re-offence rate is over 80%. So you commit a crime, you come out, 80% likelihood, over 80%, you're going to go back in prison. When people come into our programme, the re-offence rate is just hovering around under 10% at the moment, which is astonishing. So we have actually had people from the Home Office come to visit us. We've had the Home Office, we've had the Secretary of State come to visit us. We've been invited to speak in Parliament. I get, I get reception invites all the time to go and do stuff, and so does Andy Hawthorne. All the time they want to know, but we don't get any money. There's other agencies that work alongside us, do get loads of money. Do you know why we don't get any money? Because we won't compromise. Because what we say is, the reason our re-offence rates are under 10% is because there's a transforming power of Jesus Christ, and there's no other answer that we have. It's actually because we lead people to Christ. We tell people unashamedly about Jesus. We call them to a biblical lifestyle, and then we put a huge amount of effort into that and we disciple them for two years, and that's why it works. And people like the Home Office say, bravo, 
that's that's really cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for all you're doing. But we won't apologise for Jesus. Nor do I think we should. And I think in all kinds of ways. And I increase, I'm not a doom and gloom merchant. I'm not an apocalyptic preacher. But I do think that times are going to get tougher. And I do think pressure on us to compromise biblical truth is going to get increasingly tougher. And at the moment, we have all kinds of clauses that protect us and enable us to claim exclusivity about our, you know, our claims about Jesus. I think the time will come when that may be eroded from us. It might be 10 years, it might be 30 years, it could be five years. I don't know. I think with the way the world is in turmoil at the moment, pressure will increase on people who claim exclusive truth. But I, for one, have made a decision and it's a decision I made a long time ago that I'd never apologise for Jesus. What I see in Isaiah is a man who refused to compromise on truth. He wasn't worried about how popular he was going to be. And I certainly find this even working with other Christian agencies now. Not all of them, but some of them have started to compromise on Jesus. And I will not do that. Nor do I think this church ever will, as long as certainly me and Andrew and the eldership, and I can't speak for Dan because he's not here, but I know that Andrew would nod at me back. Yes, we won't compromise. I'm sure Danforth's exactly the same. I'll speak for him. There's no way we're going to apologize for Jesus or what we see as biblical truth. I feel we need confidence in that, that Jesus Christ is the only transforming power in the universe, the only lasting, truly transformative power ever, and is actually the answer. He is actually the answer to all our needs. And if you're sitting here this morning, you don't know what I'm talking about, we'd love to tell you about that and introduce you to him. Popularity shouldn't dictate our message. And the other thing is for me that God loves justice and compassion, uh, including to all creation. I have to say, this, this, I've read Isaiah many times and I've preached to it and I wrote a chapter of a book on him. Um, but I hadn't realized until I looked at this just how into creation Isaiah was as well, or is. Uh, he, he talks about animals and the creation, loads. This is just a little sideline. I found this really fascinating. If you're looking this up later or you're indeed being duteous and writing notes, Isaiah 11.6, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, I could really go into it. Um, what it seemed to me is that Isaiah actually had, despite the fact his words were quite tough, had a very gentle spirit actually. And he often talks of things like the lion lying with the lamb type image and you know, foxes and owls eating together and all this kind of stuff like that. But it's actually beautiful. When you read it, it's good to, he's got such a gentle spirit towards God's creation. And, and it was just a side thing that spun out to me. The, the, the whole thing about justice and compassion primarily extends towards people. But it did seem to me that Isaiah really uses a lot of creation imagery in what he says. Um, I mean, some people have called him the vegetarian prophet. And I, we, you'd laugh at that because it's so anti our culture. But, but it's, it's so strong when you read through the book. And I think what he's saying is, uh, well, to me it was, we don't do cruelty as Christians. You know, we, we, are, we should be the most compassionate, justice-seeking, kindest, gentlest people on the face of the planet. We are not militant. You know, we are grace-filled. No, we, we don't compromise, but that's not militancy. Actually, we are known to be gentle of heart, compassionate and kind. We've got time for people. You know, we, we 
we seek out justice for the poor, we open our homes, we care for God's creation as well. And and it was just something, I, it niggled me, and I thought, do I say this or not? But I think I will, because that's what I'm like. Um, I notice a lot of Christians are quite cruel to animals, actually. So as we say, quite cruel jokes, or, you know, like, let's kick the cat type thing. I just don't think God likes it. I think he really loves people who love his creation. I think it pleases the Lord. It is, after all, the Lord's cat. He did make it. And he obviously likes it, even if we don't. I know they can be a pain in your neck uh, sometimes, like my cat is. But I actually think God loves justice and com- uh, God loves justice and compassion. He spoke it through Isaiah, but that also includes creation. But there's some beautiful promises that come with this. Coming back to verse eight, you know, when I said about bringing a homeless point to the house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then I said there's a promise. Well, check this out in verse eight, Isaiah 58, verse eight. When you do that, then this happens. Then, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Or I think it says in the NIV, your healing will quickly appear and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you give yourselves to the hungry, do you see how he interlaces all these things about kindness and the poor and spending yourselves on the hungry and not, not being a gossiper? And all these things seem to fit together in Isaiah's head when he's writing this. And if you give yourselves to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like the midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you'll be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins, you'll raise up the age-old foundations and you'll be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honourable and honour it desisting from your own ways and seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you'll take delight in the Lord and I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth and I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And I read that again just over the last 24 hours. And I thought, when I die... And when I meet Jesus, what more beautiful thing could I have in my heart that I was a restorer of streets with dwellings? Because it's not about house renovation, right? Is it? It's about people. It's about restoring people and seeing people transformed and God's love impacting people. And it's been this little stirring at Redeemer King over the last four or five weeks of people just wanting to do stuff for the homeless and looking at what projects we can do. I mean, it's more than a handful of people now too. It's like this ground spell. And I just think, I read Isaiah again this week and read that over the last 24 hours. I thought, not only do I want that for my own life, I want because I know it pleases the Lord and because God did something in my heart when I met him when I was 18. But how amazing would that be if that was our church? We were known as a church that restored streets with dwellings and we took in the homeless poor and we provided the poor wanderer with shelter. I kind of, I don't know if I've said this before, but I always felt for years of leading church now that church should become almost like 
an ugly place, a stinking place, sophisticated people. And when I, I don't mean like, I know some of us are quite sophisticated, got a couple of degrees and everything. I mean, I mean like when we had sort of look down your nose at other people, people. Oh, they're a bit smelly. I think a church should be a difficult place for people like that. But an actually uh, a beautiful place for people who are dying without Jesus and whose lives are broken. And that might not just be materially, it could be emotionally too. A lot of people out there with locked in pain and you know, over 20 years of pastoral ministry, one of the biggest things I've realized is that we're all born, built into us, this expectation of having unconditional love, aren't we? We all expect to be loved, actually. And so many people have a deficit of that, for whatever reason. And it causes all kind of carnage. A lot of physical poverty can come out of that. A lot of emotional poverty can come out of that. And some people never get over their grief. And there's all kinds of carnage out there now in relationships, isn't there? Many, you know, m marriages don't last the way they used to. And, you know, many kids are growing up with multiple parents and all that kind of stuff, which has been increasingly unfamiliar to the church, but actually is very familiar now in society. So actually, justice and compassion I, and restoration is in the big picture to me too. You know, it's not just about the poor, but I think God's speaking to us about that, but this place needs to become a radical place of welcome for people with all kinds of stuff going on like a, a very, very grace-filled, loving place where you can come and get your head sorted out and meet Jesus. You have to meet people where they're at, don't you? So I know in this particular context, there was the, the urban poor around the cities. I mean, Jerusalem was obviously in Judah, and there was this big rich and poor divide, but I think there's, there's emotional divides too, and there's all kinds of stuff happening out there which... It's just carnage. I just come across it all the time, don't you? The people you work alongside, do, do you not? The people you work alongside, there's so much pain out there as well. Wouldn't it be amazing if this place just had a, not this physical school, because we might have to move one day, but when people walk in, they come amongst us, we're the most loving, I'll say it again, loving, compassionate, kind, welcoming, tolerant people. We have a hot centre that says this is biblical truth. We will not compromise on the truth, but actually we draw people to that truth because God loves people. And you are all, and everyone out there, one of his astonishingly beautiful, amazing creations. You might not feel that looking in the mirror, but you all are, and they all are too. In fact, everything that walks on the earth, made by God, but people especially, God breathes his spirit into. He loves us and adores us. And he adores people out there. So much so he sent his son Jesus to die. Which is why these, these 66 prophecies of Jesus are so stamped, stamped through Isaiah. It's so important. This whole thing saying, I hate your new moon festivals. I hate what's going on. But I'm still going to send a Messiah to die. Because I love you. So, going back to Isaiah chapter 1, you know when I read out those harsh words, let me bring this in a full circle, which is uh, from verse 18. I mean, it, it, it says in Isaiah 1, you know, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. 
in verse 18. I mean, this is the God of heaven. Come on. Let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the Lord. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you often get this through Isaiah. Warnings, but beautiful promises too. If you just listen, if you just listen, then all these beautiful things will happen. Your healing will quickly appear. There'll be restoration and you'll feast on the the best fruits of the land. But you've got to listen to what I'm saying. You've got to turn from your wicked ways and then all these beautiful and amazing things will happen. Well, I want that for this church. I want this church to have a prophetic note about it, like in the time of Isaiah, that when people encounter us, they feel that radical love of God. And we say to people, you know, we believe that there's a way that God is calling us to live, but we just want a journey with you. We just want a journey with you. At an event recently, and I'm not going to go into details of who it was, but in a, a big scale event we had recently uh, at work, we invited two guests who were radically opposed to the gospel and had been outspoken about it. And we invited them to this big black tie do. And we set our best people to sit alongside them and talk to them like you do. And these... these uh, two guys have been militantly opposed to pretty much everything that we would stand for and at the end of that evening they were so overcome um, well let me tell you what he said one of them said um, so um, if there's a God then how come this and how come there's wars and how come he, God hates gay people and how come God hates Muslims and you know it's really like aggressive and this, this young evangelist sitting next to him just looked at him really gently and said, I do you think you're asking the wrong question. I think the question you should be asking is, what if God made the world and what if actually he really loves you and you're just viewing him through the filter of what you want rather than through the filter of Jesus? Because I think if you looked at Jesus, he'd say something very different. Went, oh, well, um, what does that mean to you then? He said, well, let me share my testimony with you. I mean, he didn't say testimony, he said, let me share my story. By the end of the evening, this guy, these two guys actually said, what church do you go to? He said, well, he goes to this church and I go to that church. He said, well, I think I'd like to come to a church like that, if that's what you like. And they didn't compromise on the truth, these young evangelists. But they just said, believe God loves you. And, and actually, God would want you in a church, even though you've been saying things about him, that you hate him, which he wants you here. And that's what we need, isn't it? In this place, rock solid on the truth, won't compromise on the word of God. We will not stop speaking for Jesus. We won't compromise on how we interpret biblical living, but it's a place of inclusion and welcome where we accept that people are on a bit of a journey. I think that's a really, really big theme. Big themes of Isaiah, justice and compassion. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Other big themes, power and control by human beings, by kings, and nothing compared to God. Nothing. God's in charge. But overarching all of it, he is the evangelist prophet. 
Jesus is coming back. The Messiah is coming and one day all will be well. But turn from your sin and follow the ways of the Lord and then you'll do well in life. That's, that's, that's Isaiah for me in a moderate nutshell. But I do suggest you read it because it's really complicated and don't watch 300 as part of your research. It's not what I meant. But let's pray. But let's take a moment. There might have been something in that. Um, may, maybe there's something in that that the Lord spoke to you about. I know for me, when I reread Isaiah 58, I thought I, I need to welcome the homeless poor back into my home. And I, I thought, I, you know, uh, me and, and the other elders and all of us here, we, we've got to work on this becoming a place that is filled with compassion and justice. And I thought we, you know, we can't, we can't wait much longer before we do something very substantial in our town. There's something else that came out to me, and, and themes about cruelty and kindness came out to me too.